everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Colin, how are you? I'm good. How about yourself, Wayne? It's been uh, a little over four years since I did a last presentation. Yeah, well, that's a good time for you to be back. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, happy to be back. That's a, it's a good venue. That's why I wanted to return to it. Well, again, we appreciate it. We think it's a pretty good venue, too. Um, anyway, um, why don't we go ahead and get started? I'll introduce you. So, Mark, why don't you go ahead and start recording? Yeah, we're recording now. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Um, got a huge privilege to be having a repeat speaker, uh, Colin Lennox, who has been with us. He just mentioned, and I didn't remember exactly the time, but um, four years ago. And, Colin, we just had our seventh anniversary um, on June 6th. So we're pretty pleased that we're still around after seven years and yeah. continue to grow and continue to have amazing webinars like yours. And, uh, and we hope we're serving our audiences in a good way. So anyway, I think you're going to do a presentation today for about 30, 35 minutes. But first, yep. I'm going to just ask you a few questions just so people who didn't listen to your first presentation will know a little bit about you. Um, why don't you tell us just in you know less than five minutes your professional history, unless you've got it on your presentation. If you have it on your presentation, we'll, we'll do it then. But uh, if you don't, go ahead and maybe tell us about your, uh, your, your sort of professional history. Uh, you, you got it, Wayne. Thank you for the intro. Uh, my name's Colin Lennox. I'm the CEO of Eco Islands LLC. Uh, the thing that I will be known for is as the inventor of the self-organizing wetland bioreactor. Uh, I hope <laughs> that would be nice. I uh, went to Penn State for environmental studies in English. Uh, was in the infantry for a while. Uh, I've, I've done environmental education field trips and the like uh, in Alaska, Hawaii, California, uh, Nevada, a little piece of Nevada, and of course here in Pennsylvania. I uh, did AmeriCorps for a while, uh, and then I, I started um, Eco Islands right out of college. It was in 2009, and I graduated at the age of 29 and uh, 42 now, so I've been at it for almost 13 years. Um, and, you know, filing for patents, uh, and the, the business, we primarily work in acid mine drainage, uh, but we're starting to branch into wastewater treatment uh, and food waste and uh, uh, methane uh, biopurification. Uh, so those, those are the, uh, the, the, big mar the biggest markets that we've identified as uh, being uh, uh, the most uh, salient to, uh, to our bioreactors. Cool. So let's let's go a little bit on the personal side. Tell us about sort of where you grew up, your current family situation, um, and then end it with 
Tell us about the person who's had the most influence on your life other than your immediate family. I don't know if I can answer that last one. Um, uh, well, personal life. Maybe on your professional life. Just... Yeah. Uh, I'm going to pass on that last one. There's too many okay. to tell. And it's, yeah, uh, personal life. Uh, I'm, you know, born, raised, educated, and constantly returning to Altoona, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is home. This is the family farm, so to speak. Uh, and yeah, that's. Yeah, that's good enough for personal life. Not much to tell. Bachelor, cool. I'm married to my business. Uh, you know, that doesn't really give a lot of time for anything else. You uh, stay healthy during the pandemic? Did you catch, did you get COVID? And if so, was it? I don't think I did. Uh, as as most, most scientists, uh, especially with biological background, uh, I've I hate to have to say it, but I believe in vaccines. Uh, <laughs> you know, ask anybody who didn't get polio. Uh, you know, um, but yeah, I, I don't think I had it at all. Uh, and I'm boosted and not, uh, it's time for the next one. It'll, but of course, I ended up having to like move into the uh, basement and, and re, re, uh, redo the entire basement uh, with the lab and the shop just to keep mom safe. Uh, so that was a real stress. Um, I, you know, I weathered the storm like, well, most of us did, um, young, healthy for the most part. Uh, and I'm really glad to see the back end of that. I don't know. We're still, <laughs> most of the people I knew who died from it died within the last year. Uh, and that's the thing. It wasn't in 2019 or 2020, 21, uh, or 2020, 2021. Um, it was within the last year and I could name at least six or seven personally people that I grew up with. Uh, and they were by and large unvaccinated. Uh, only one of them passed who was vaccinated. All the rest of them were just, well, whatever their reasons are, they're not here anymore. So we'll just kind of leave it at that. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I seems like I made it through, although my sister and my brother-in-law just had it. So COVID isn't gone, um, especially in areas that don't mask very well, and that's central Pennsylvania. But yeah, things are looking up. How about yourself, Wayne? Like, uh, you and yours able to make it through? I mean, obviously you're here, but like, uh, did, did you catch it? I actually have had it three times. Darn. Um, and, and also, um, I I have an autoimmune um, disease called, um, it's, it's kind of a weird, PMR is the deviation for it, which means my, my immune system is depressed normally. Okay. So uh, it was recommended by my physician, and unfortunately, I have a bunch of them, um, that a hematologist and a, uh, a cardiologist and you name it, a bunch of others, hematologists, that I not be vaccinated. Um, okay. Because of the way that mRNA works, is it essentially compromises your immune system to kill the virus, and then, you know, it, it regenerates but I, I just couldn't risk that so anyway I I haven't had any real symptoms from it but I was tested positive three different times October 1st first uh, of January sometime in early January and then again in, in um, early March um, so and I had something else going on so I I was kind of sick and 
February and March, but unrelated to COVID, um, more related to the autoimmune situation. But I got through that and everything's fine. And I'm out doing my 10 mile running days again and feeling good about that. So that's a, that's a good thing. Um, a lot more than I can do. Yeah. Most of what I'm anyway. doing is equivalent of strength training, trying to just building these boxes is very, it's, it's tough on the body. Um, they're just big and heavy to move around and I'm the only one to do it. So, right. yeah, what you going to well, do? You know, this that's a good transition. Why don't we go ahead and move into your presentation? And you've, you've already got the slides up there. Mark and Areeb can help us with any questions that occur so you don't have to worry about looking for those. And when you're done, I'm sure we'll have a bunch of questions and I hope the audience does too. And then we'll, we'll kind of do a little bit more uh, digging into your, your business and, and your, uh, your bioreactor situation after you've done the presentation. So take it Sounds away. Good. I'm going to turn my webcam off so it's not distracting. Um, so. Like that. Uh, okay, so self-organizing wetland bioreactors. As now, this this was um, done for my Mars Society presentation in LA in 2019. Uh, I keep going back to it just because I like this presentation. It's fun. And it makes you think bigger than just here. And when I say here, I mean Earth. Uh, you know, that there, there's a whole lot of space out there, but bump, bump. And uh, you know, we, it, it, it is valuable that we look beyond just this planet. Although, if we don't get it right here, we're never going to get it right up there. So you know, it's still you got to keep your focus. You know, don't don't miss the forest for the trees. Um, but this was this presentation then was done uh, to talk about you know what wetlands are, what bioreactors are, and why my mining experience in bio, mining bioreactors is uh, prescient to what's called um, ISRU or in situ resource utilization, uh, essentially just getting raw material and turning it into something useful. Uh, and that the bioreactors are one of the primary catalyzing agents to make it efficient it, pretty much anywhere, but it requires terrestrial microbiology. Uh, and uh, as well as an understanding of what self-organization means in regards to uh, what's called Gibbs free energy. And, and that's that's something we'll get into here a little bit uh, later on. But that's kind of like the big, big picture of this uh, presentation. So um, primarily, we're going to be talking about uh, regolith and mining, but it also keep in mind that this has to do with your atmosphere, nutrients and waste cycling. Uh, okay. There we go. Okay, uh, I'm going to come back to this one, but this is the redox ladder. From top to bottom, where you see O2 and H2O there on the oxic conditions to the methanic conditions, you get the most, and, and it is actually going to be kind of simple, you get the most energy out of the oxic ones and the least out of the methanic. And every point in between there is, a, is, is less and less and less free energy. And essentially the idea of self-organization is that the microbes that are the most efficient will outcompete everybody else until the metabolites are gone 
whatever that redox reaction, whatever that metabolic pathway is, and that then that opens up an opportunity for new competition and 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 the the environment shifts and changes that the new ones take over and take and, and using up this new uh, whatever the next most abundant redox pathway may be. I know that sounds like a lot, but we're going to come back to it. So, but but if if if, if you understood that, then the rest of this is going to be easy. Um, but we'll we'll be coming back to that. But just remember that it's steps. There's more more energy at the top, less at the bottom, and more energy means better competitiveness in an environment. And then when something runs out, it, the environment that niche changes uh, to favor whoever is next, the next most abundant and energetically available redox couplet. And if you know where you are, and you know uh, with, within, like say if you're looking at your water samples, you would say like, oh, okay, well, I don't have any nitrate, I've got lots of oxygen, but one, once all the oxygen's burned up, uh, that's gonna kick us right over to uh, iron. Uh, you know, F FE3 or FE2, you know, whether it's oxidized or reduced, um, depends on, once again, the metabolic pathway. But then you could say it's like, okay, and then we chew up all the iron, and then we're down to manganese. And then from manganese, you go selenium, sulfate, and these are just the biggies. There's a lot of other things. And then down to methane. But those are the biggies. Those are the ones I deal with. Um, and they're kind of like the, the ones that are the most predominant when you think of biogeochemical cycling in the terrestrial environments. But, uh, yeah, if you get that, steps, energy, and that gives – and what it does is it gives you the roadmap. If you know where you are in one spot – and you look at the numbers, and then, then you know, oh, hey, we don't even have to worry about this because this doesn't even exist within this water, and it kicks you right over to the next one. And then you can, and, and, and then you can intelligently design a system that sequesters and creates individualized niches that you can then tap into and pull off of, because you know where everything's going to be separated. And I know that sounds complicated, but this is how a wetland works. Uh, and it really, it really isn't because it happens without you even thinking about it. This is just basic biogeochemical cycling, but taken in a way that can be useful then. Um, so we'll get back to that. Okay, so uh, what is a wetland? Uh, just loosely, just, you know, you think of a wetland, you think of a bunch of, you know, sparrows and bird boxes and wood ducks and frogs and all sorts of critters. And yeah, that, that, that works. Um, but I don't deal with um, living plant matter at all in my reactors. Uh, we use um, waste matter, essentially, you know, shredded coconuts, other things. We'll come to that, but um, just uh, loosely, a uh, wetland is holds water. Um, it produces energetically reduced or oxidized products, which is just another fancy way of saying like it'll produce solids, liquids, and gases. Um, not, well, it's not really producing liquids, that there are things, solutes within the liquid, I should say. Um, it's got a lot of biofilm mass, uh, growing and living uh, microbes in a consortium that produces uh, what's called an EPS or an extra polysaccharidal matrix that they live in um, and that they're constantly excreting and this gives them levels of defense, uh, some limited forms of uh, cellular communication, uh, but, but mainly defense. Um, it is thought that up to half of all the biomass on the planet is biofilm, stuff you can't even see. Uh, and it is certainly responsible for all the biological breakdown, not all, but, you know, the, the vast majority of the biological breakdown of uh, waste litter, mass, plant mass, whatever, uh, you know, it's 
you 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 wouldn't even exist if it weren't for the microbes in your guts. Uh, now I'm not gonna, I'm not talking about medically uh, speaking here. That that's far beyond my zen. Um, but we exist as a walking polyculture, and to understand that is also a good way to kind of like think about a wetland. You got all sorts of different microbes, and you know their their biomass and uh, their their diversity in their population. I should say population volume changes and responds to what's exogenous flux or things that are happening outside change that biofilm. Um, but it's also uh, in a natural wetland, it can bounce back. Uh, there, there, there is a uh, high level of adaptability that allows a, uh, a wetland to, you know, after a flood bounce back, uh, or if it gets really dry to bounce back when it gets wet again. Um, Organic matter is surface area uh, and nutrient energy sources, uh, as mentioned, like, so the picture in the background there, that's the most beautiful wedding I've ever been to. Uh, that's down in South Carolina. Uh, and I it just demonstrated in a really nice picture. You've got a whole bunch of different environments uh, there on the far left. You've got, um, you know, shoreline and some really nice houses. <laughs> it's a beautiful area. And then you've got your, your wetland plants. And then as the water gets deeper, the, uh, your macrophytes or your wetland plants um, start getting shaded out that they don't have enough um, photosynthesis or, you know, photons getting through the water. And, you know, then, then the water gets deeper and it shifts to other kinds of plants. So you have this uh, self-selection based off of, you know, uh, once again, just energy sources. That's, that's, by and large, that's, that's what, uh, you know, your self-selection is running off of. Uh, and then self-organization, uh, EPA and DEP calls this natural attenuation. Um, I not a big. I, I like self-organizing better personally, uh, but each their own. Um, and uh, it's it's self-selection leads to self-organization uh, of unique wetland habitats. So to self-select means that microbes would individually be selecting, but in the aggregate. And, and, and after you think about the, the overall size and mass and the the ins and the outs of a wetland, that is self-organization. Self so that self-selection leads to self-organization. Uh, what is biofilm? I kind of already talked about this. Uh, mix of microbes and their secreted colloids. Mayonnaise is a colloid, just to kind of give you an idea. Um, they're generally stable in mass. Uh, population diversity and density, uh, unless, you know, influenced by some kind of outside source. Um, and once again, the biofilm is protected by, uh, or the microbes are protected by the biofilm that they're excreting. Uh, and their uh, main components are natural cycling. Uh, yeah, we talked about that. Um, what is a bioreactor? Uh, so a bioreactor does predictable and reproducible, reproducible work. And I'm using work like in the classic, you know, uh, energy over time equals some some work number, uh, whether that be pounds lifted or gallons moved or miles driven, whatever work of some kind. Um, and, uh, and in this case, that work, the way I represent uh, our numbers is in grams removed or sequestered or converted by the wetland bioreactor per cubic meter of volume a day. That's that. Those are the numbers that we use. Sometimes it'll drift up into, uh, uh, you know, a kilogram per cubic meter a day. 
Um, my best numbers uh, for manganese oxides were 360 grams a cubic meter a day. And uh, for uh, low pH iron oxidation was 800 grams per cubic meter a day. Um, and and that, that's based off of, you know, water going in, water coming out, and you remove 12 milligrams at, you know, say 50 gallons a minute uh, of, uh, of iron, say that works out to about 800 grams per cubic meter a day. Uh, so it's, it's, it's reproducible and it's, it's very specific. Uh, one, one of my pet peeves in, in, um, in constructed wetlands, uh, is that the, the metrics are square meters or meters squared, but it doesn't say anything about how deep that, that particular embodiment may be. It's not consistent. You're not getting enough of the, the full knowledge of what is going on within that system. And I, I consider that kind of lazy engineering. Um, it, does, it really isn't giving you exactly what you need. But when you go cubic meters, and it's easy for me to say, I build boxes that are 2.4, you know, one, three or four cubic meters. You know, I mean, it's easy for us to say because we have something that's very easily quantifiable because we can construct it in the, in the shop as exactly that. Um, but, you know, so that's, it, it's just an easier way for us to, to show what our numbers are and then stack them against other best management practices towards the same in purpose and intention. Um, so uh, catalyzes, uh, uh, bioreactor catalyzes reactions producing useful byproducts, manganese oxides, rare earth elements, CO2, um, if, if you want carbon dioxide, if that's what you're looking for, or if you're trying to move, remove oxygen intentionally. Um, methane production, uh, hydrogen sulfide to produce sulfuric acid, uh, potentially. I haven't done that one yet, but that's that's coming up. Um, that, and that one, that one could be really important, uh, but we'll talk about that one later on. Uh, so an unintentional bioreactor would be like a natural wetland uh, where they're self-selecting and organizing. Um, whereas, uh, cause that's what they do. Um, whereas intentional bioreactors constructed or manufactured slash fabricated wetlands, uh, they grow biofilm to generate environments and products to sustain human ecological survival indefinitely. Um, the thing about our systems is that, that as opposed to a natural wetland, natural wetlands, when they fill in through siltation, the entire water course will move. Surprise, surprise. I mean, that's geomorphology. That's, you know, that's just, that's nature. And it, uh, and it then, you know, kind of rolls over entire landscapes, remaking the landscape as it goes through just, you know, the process, natural processes of erosion. Um, but when your wetland fills in, it's gone. And well, it'll shift, it'll move somewhere else. But if you need to clean something and you're, you're, you know, you can't have your, your natural wetland going onto somebody else's property and it's still count for you being, having your water clean. Uh, so constructed wetlands and manufactured wetlands. Now we're the first to do manufactured wetlands, near as I can tell. I still haven't come across anybody else doing anything like what we're doing, even at, even after like four or five years later. Um, we're still kind of ahead of the game on it. Um, constructed wetlands would be like um, vertical flow cells, successive al alkalinity producing systems, saps or wraps. Uh, those are big limestone ponds essentially uh or you build you, you build a pond throw a bunch of limestone in that's your alkalinity amendment uh those things don't they, they work great but they usually fail because a lot of times people are cheap on the pipe and they don't build a very good manifold system uh and they need rebuilt every 10 15 20 years depending on how bad 
they screwed it up in the first place or if they actually did it right and it lasts for 40 years. You know, it's, it's there, there, a lot of that is, is based off of with somebody trying to be cheap on pipe and liner. That's that's usually the fail points in constructed wetlands. Uh, and, and they're built, they're constructed, as it says, so they're, they're, they're built out on site. Um, takes, you know, they can take a couple months uh, and to, to do the work uh, when you're out there, and, uh, as opposed to when you're manufacturing or fabricating wetlands, where we do all the work in the shop, and then I can throw in a whole bunch of wetlands or boxes. They're, they're still wetlands in just a couple days. So it's, it's doing the work where it's easy, uh, you don't have to have anywhere near the volume of water retained. So you don't have to worry about a dam blowing out. Like, I don't know if you guys had heard about um, some of those uh, mine drainage impoundments blowing out. And then all that stuff going down river and killing. Like, not only is there flood killing people, but then, you know, this all of the nastiness that was in that mine drainage pond is now in the river. And then a lot of times they just end up getting all scot-free. Uh, it, it just, it happens. Uh, okay, so examples of bioreactors. This, this one's kind of fun. Um, natural wetlands, methane digesters, reclamation ponds, fish tanks, greenhouses, wastewater treatment plants, uh, wine and beer vats, even though those would be monocultures, uh, you know, towards the specific production of alcohol. Um, and there, there will be, instead of this uh, a broad diversity of microbes and biofilm, you'll end up having, um, you know, with, within that vat, uh, planktonic microbes floating around, consuming the sugars and producing alcohol. And they're generally a monoculture. But it's still, you know, it, it holds water. It has microbes. It's purposeful. Uh, so, you know, we're kind of straight. I, I just want you to keep in mind that, you know, it's okay to stretch the definition a little bit on what a wetland is. You know, it doesn't have to have blue herons walking around in it. Um, there, one of my favorite lines uh, from uh, Star Trek, uh, TNG, uh, was when they ran into the crystalline, a crystalline entity. Wayne might remember this one if you're if you're a trekker. Um, and it would call the humans bags of mostly water. Now, like you think about it, like eh, yeah, all right, so it's permeable, holds water self-selecting and organizing biofilm you know yeah you know i, I if you really if, i don't think it's too much of a stretch to call ourselves wetlands either um considering try drying us out see how long we last <laughs> you know uh, so that's that's why i like this slide and then of course people plants box turtles are my dog river and by the way she does not see that box turtle that's how well it's hidden and it's only like two feet away from it three feet away she's a silly bear <laughs> Uh, okay, so going into mine drainage, um, indicators and adaptations, uh, either automatic or manual, that you can do to increase the productivity of your bioreactors is, uh, and, and these, are, these are some of the things that you measure. So, like, if I go onto a mine site, um, you know, you're going to be doing, uh, using an ORP probe. They're cheap, like 20 bucks. Uh, and they're just telling you what your, uh, your oxidative reductive potential is. Uh, which tells you, um, it, it gives you an idea on the amount of, instead of using, say, like uh, dissolved oxygen, uh, you can monitor for ORP. Uh, and, and you kind of know, like, if you've got an aerobic system that if you build it right, you're going to have plenty of uh, oxygen anyway, so there's no point in really using your ORP probe. Um, but this would be more for if you're getting down intentionally for sulfate reduction to, say, produce uh, increased loads, uh, loading of alkalinity. 
uh, or uh, methane um, systems. Uh, of course, you know, your other things, when you when I go on site, I measure flow. You know, you bucket and stopwatch. Pretty simple. Um, pH, obviously, litmus strips are an expensive field probe. Mine costs like 40 bucks, uh, $50 online. Um, obviously, temperature, because uh, when you're thinking temperature, you're thinking about dissolved oxygen, uh, DO, your, your oxygen solubility. Um, and, and also as a proxy for your, you know, kind of an estimation on how quickly your system is going to work um, because of the metabolic advantage. If it's really cold, you've got more O2, uh, but it's, it, it also, you know, you've, you've got limitations in just the abiotic uh, or the, the, the chemical movement uh, and, and rate of reactions are slowed under colder temperatures. So there's, there's kind of this balancing act. Um, but you don't have to worry about the balancing act as much when it's biological because you, you, you think about, well, you, now you actually have more DO. And if you have microbes that are adapted to the cold, they're just moving along like gangbusters. It doesn't matter if it's 33 degrees. And case in point, some of the most productive uh, environments on the planet are, you know, you think about uh, what the deadliest catch out there in Alaska's Gulf. Incredibly uh, uh, rich fields and uh, in, in environments of nutrient exchange uh, through good mixing and the availability of oxygen. Uh, even though it's cold, it's, it's incredibly uh, healthy and productive uh, systems. So it is, you know, you don't necessarily want to think about, you know, temp is a bad thing. And on the flip side of that, when you're, when sometimes you say, if you're using a methane digester or you want to encourage a methane uh, producing environment, uh, you know, you, you want, you know, around 90 Fahrenheit uh, for the, the mesophiles, mesophilic microbes that are working, uh, that, that are the methanogens, um, where oxygen has to be eliminated because that's all the way at the top of the redox ladder, you know, and you basically want all the other what's called terminal electron acceptors, and we'll talk about that a little later on. You want everything else gone. Um, and then the microbes can start using CO2 as your terminal electron acceptor start producing uh, methane from it. But CO2 reduction is a very inefficient system. Uh, it, it does not net a very mu a, a much Gibbs-free energy. And another way to uh, look at Gibbs-free energy is uh, ATP or acetyl triphosphate production. Um, like uh, in aerobic uh, conditions or, you know, us, you know, our, we use uh, aerobic conditions uh, it's an oxidative system, and you get 32 ATP out of using oxygen uh, for our terminal electron acceptor, our, our, our uh, exhaust system, essentially. And um, our carbon source and our energy source are coming from our food. It's a highly efficient system. Um, it's, it's what allows us to be these big multicellular organisms walking and talking and thinking and just breathing right along. Um, it's, it's the only one of the, uh, the metabolic pathways that is, provides enough efficiency to allow for multicellular organisms. Uh, everything else is micro, uh, microcellular, uh, uh, monocellular, uh, you know, just little critters because anything else, uh, just doesn't provide enough bang for your buck. It's kind of like thinking about the differences between gasoline and diesel, that by, per, by volume, diesel has 30% more energy by volume than gasoline does, which is one of the reasons why it's more expensive. But if it's only a dollar difference, you're, you know, you're, you're really more efficient to go off of diesel, just depending on what you're trying to do.
Um, let's see, so uh, one, one of the other ones to look at is EC or electroconductivity. Um, it can also be measured in salinity or uh, total dissolved solids, TDS. Um, but after talking to some of the other professors, I, I'm, I'm not a PhD, I'm sorry, but, uh, but talking to some of the professors that I work with, um, EC is considered the, the way to go. So I just stick with EC, although, you know, because they're not, they're kind of interchangeable, but they're not really interchangeable. You know, was they, they sort of tell you different things, but it's, you know, just stick with EC. That's, that's what you have to report. Uh, metabolic pathways. Okay. It's, uh, um, as mentioned, uh, electron acceptors, electron donors. So the donor uh, for us is our food. That's also our carbon. Uh, it's our carbon source as well. Um, and but not always. Uh, well, I mean, for, for us, it is always that. But uh, depending on the metabolic pathways, this once again will determine what's growing where and under what conditions. And it is predictable. And you can tell what is next by just looking at the data. And when I say, pardon me, when I say looking at the data, so what we get from the mine sites is we're going to get um, pH, alkalinity, temperature, flow, sulfate, aluminum, iron, manganese, total suspended solids. Yeah, that's about it. Uh, usually, I mean, selenium, sometimes they'll measure for selenium. Sometimes you're going to be looking at nickel and zinc, but around here, that's very rare. Um, in Pennsylvania, the coal mining lands, that is. Uh, selenium doesn't happen a whole lot around here, which is good because selenium is a, that, that one is tough and it's also can be deadly. Uh, selenium, uh, it, you both need it as a micronutrient to survive. Um, certain, uh, um, uh, what's, what's the term I'm looking for? Uh, so certain of our metabolites, um, vitamins, uh, are, are, you, you require selenium. Um, so you, you, you can't really live without it, but it doesn't take much before it's really going to do you dirty. And selenium is a big issue down in West Virginia uh, and, and the su Southern Appalachia. Uh, and it is very difficult. It's one of those ones that has to be reduced. You, you know, you can't, it's usually presented as selenate. Um, so it's already in an oxidized soluble condition. Uh, and the, you know, you'd have to go down through the redox ladder to reduce that selenium down to elemental selenium, which is the least soluble. So the most able, uh, the, the easiest to capture in your bioreactor and elemental selenium is also the least toxic. So that's the, the that's, you want to drive it down in that direction. Wayne, I, I, I recall, um, years ago that we had, um, I brought that up and that was uh, a big condition for Midwest watering troughs where there's too much selenium. Uh, and some of the uh, the water going to the animals. Um, I, yeah. I, I, Selenium seen... is an issue in a number of locations. It's natural, um, but it's uh, it isn't typically in shallow groundwater. But yes, it can be an issue. Yeah, especially when you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper for groundwater, and then you're just it's it's like just dropping the mine water table and allowing more fresh water to go spilling over water sources that had never really been tapped before, essentially. Um, so uh, let's see, uh, yeah, the term electron donors, but it's uh, if you think your electrons and your donors, uh, between those two, it gives you an idea of where you are in your, your, your redox pathway and the direction to go towards cleaning the water and removing these impactors. Um, yeah, sources of TEDS T determines the metabolic pathways that can exist in a discrete wetland niche. Yeah, that's good. Uh, 
Oh, wow. I don't want to go over this one too much. Um, but the big idea is, so this is getting more into, um, this This is ORP. So if you see the blue uh, 450 electron volts, ORP is measured in electron volts to the negative 450, uh, which is uh, kind of considered the bioredox wall. Positive 450 would be oxidative air, uh, environments. Negative 450 is methanic. Uh, so if you were to go all the way back to the beginning, uh, it's Um, positive 450 is the oxic, negative 450 is the methanic. And keep in mind then, and this is where electrochemistry kind of comes into it, that electron volts, that's literally the voltage. It's 0.9 volts. If you connect oxic to anoxic, the methanic, and short circuit that system, you would get 0.9 volts. Just like you get 1.5 out of the zinc um, uh, alkaline, like one of those alkaline batteries, which use, has the zinc jacket, manganese oxide, uh, and you know your standard D cells or AAAs, whatever. Those are 1.5 volts. It's the same thing. You've got a value, and it, although in those systems that is just purely um, chemical, um, in a biochemical system, you best best you're going to get is about 0.9 volts. Um, but and this this is uh, there's something called a Winogradsky column. Um, and it, 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 I don't have one here handy. Uh, I don't actually, uh, yeah, I'm not going to get too deep into that, but, uh, a lot of these principles were discovered back in the uh, early 1920s by a uh, brilliant Russian, um, microbiologist by the name of Sergei Winogradsky. Uh, and he was able, he was one of the first ones to start discovering, uh, biological potentials, oh, electrical setups or electric, excuse me, electrical potentials generated through self-organization of biological environments. Uh, and he did it with a big old column, a uh, big glass column, not even that big, you know, like tabletop, you know, uh, two, two or three liters, not very large, and then putting pond muck into it. And then that pond muck will stratify itself. And you can tell by the color coding, it'll be, it'll be color coded like the sulfate, it'll be like pink. Um, I, I don't think I actually have any of those in here. Uh, in, in this presentation, but it, it's pretty easy. You can look it up, but it, it's a way of in a classroom showing students, hey, there's biological self-organization and it organizes itself top to bottom and the uh, with the, the open top, there's your aerobic and at the bottom would be your methanic. Now, no methane gets out of the system because that methane is it reduced or as it uh, is reduced and produced, it travels upwards, but then is uh, used as a terminal electron donor by something else above it so it never comes out i mean you're going to just be venting off carbon dioxide but if you know that and if you had a tap at that per uh, at that certain spot you'd be able to pull your methane off what my boxes what are the self-organizing wetland bioreactors do is instead of a, a column going vertically you put it on its side and then you allow for access into those individual niches but it still self-organizes whether it be reduced or oxidizing conditions uh, so that's that, that's that's the process. It's how you measure it, um, and after that, you just set the damn thing up and you just let the water start running, and you just clean it out. I mean, it's that's what a natural wetland does. As mentioned before, natural wetlands destroy themselves because they move and they fill in. So you need a way to be able to remove the material. But if you can effectively and efficiently remove the material, uh, then you're into a spot. Now you've got a a, a biological engine that is producing material for you 
and all you have to do is let the water run through it and either remove oxygen entirely so that it kicks into the next lower level, the ne uh, less energetically efficient redox couplet, and then it goes to the next one, goes to the next one and goes into the next one. Uh, until you're uh, down to basically the only thing that will pass through a system like that would be the salts. You'll have removed the vast majority of your carbon in some form. Uh, and um, it's, it's, it's pretty straightforward after that. Uh, I'm definitely not trying to get into this one, but uh, this is this is my opus right here. This This would be an entire Martian system or here terrestrially. A system that takes regolith, processes it biologically, but not not 100%. This is about 90% of your work is going to be done by the microbes. You still need redundancy. You still need the other chemical, mechanical, electrical um, systems to back up what you have. But you now can get 90% of the work done biologically. And in some cases, there are discrete systems or biological niches that they're the only ones that can effectively do a, you know, a thing like a methane digester just, it just pumps out methane. You don't have to worry too much about it. And it does it for peanuts. It's literally just the microbes just doing their thing, going along, do, you know, having their lifespans and, and doing their thing, as opposed to having to do it energetically um, through some form of electrolysis process. Um, I mean, maybe not necessarily with methane, but uh, you know, there, there, there are, uh, methane rectifiers, uh, uh, steam rectification. Uh, I, I forget what the process is that the Germans used in World War II. Uh, the gasification of coal uh, was was one step. All of those requiring a lot of energy. Where you know, if you're willing to be a little bit more patient, you can still have everything. You know, you can still have your cake and eat it too, and just use 90% less energy. Um, but I'm not trying to get into this. If anybody wants this fly, uh, the this um, poster here, you're welcome to it. Uh, I still stand by it, and uh, you can see the electron voltage in the systems there. And um, I mean, if somebody really wants to go over it, uh, you know, you, I, you'd be surprised how many people in the Mars Society, even they don't necessarily get what I'm talking about here because they're engineers by and large. And this is an all of the above kind of approach, but based off of self-organization of wetland components and wet, wetland bioreactors. Um, and if anybody can punch any holes in that too, please, I like, that's fine. Like I, 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 I welcome, I, I welcome that. I'm pretty sure that I'm good on what I, I have here, but I haven't come across anybody yet who knows really the same, has the same level of experiences to be able to peer review it. So please, you know, and, and that, that's what I'm asking for. It's like, if somebody wants to peer review it, I'm happy to go over it with you. Uh, like, but this is my opus and this is based off everything I've already told you beforehand. Um, and which is also based off the practical experiences with putting in mining reactors over the last 12 years. Okay, um, benefits of self-organizing wetland bioreactors as opponent, uh, component of Seclis on Mars. And that's, um, Oh, what was that? Uh, environmental control and life support systems. Um, so expected to save one to two exponents in energy. That's that 90% uh, for Martian or terrestrial base had colonies as a whole. Um, there's more natural cycling. Um, by the way, this the the broad kind of 
um, tautology that this is resting in is called bioremediation. That's if, if you wanted to find out more, you'd get yourself a bioremediation textbook, uh, and that that'll take you through a lot of what we just talked about. This is the very compressed, high-level version of that. Um, let's see, it's generally about one, 50 to 150 times smaller. And that's based off of, once again, going back to our metrics, where uh, cubic meter or uh, grams per cubic meter a day. Um, when I say our, my best is 360 grams per cubic meter a day, standard um, uh, best management practice for a limestone bed would be 2 to 20 grams per cubic meter a day. And my best has been so far 360. And that is based off of double blind data uh, going to the coming back to us from the labs. Uh, as well on mul across multiple sites as well um, here in Pennsylvania, uh, some different mining sites with manganese. Um, so that's where we're getting, that's where we're coming up with our numbers and that's from that. Um, let's see, now this does not include the efficiencies of beneficial byproducts though, because you know, we're just talking about like, well, the water's gotta be clean before it leaves site or else somebody's gonna get a fine. But if you're trying to do this intentionally uh, and you're getting byproducts that you can sell well, you're, now you've got another whole way to quantify um, your efficiency in the form of return on investment. And now we're talking business models. Um, let's see. Uh, it's harder to calculate that, uh, at least initially, because uh, there's a lot more factors. Um, but, you know, dollar dollar bills, y'all, you know, what's going into your bank account? Will a system pay for itself by doing this as opposed to some other management practice like limes, bigger and more limestone beds or getting stuck with having to use caustic soda, which is now two bucks a gallon. Um, and just two years ago, it was like a buck and a quarter. Uh, at, uh, that's 25%. Then um, you can't use 50 when it gets cold because it freezes at like 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, uh, so there's, you, you have to dilute it down. So there's a whole thing. Um, but being conservative, we expect to see about a 90% reduction in energy to perform related tasks or standard current methods in the aggregate. Uh, or about one exponent. Uh, but when you add in beneficial byproducts and small size, we can uh, we expect a second exponent, and which is what we have seen as far as our data uh, is is coming back to us as. Uh, okay, here's a couple of the older boxes. Um, those are the white ones are built in 2017, shortly before my first presentation with Wayne and uh, Mark and Arib. Uh, the the black box there is a thermally welded box that we had built in 2017. Yeah, 2018. Um, it was good. Uh, it was it was low pH iron, and the, but the problem was it was it worked so well that it was pulling so much material that the design of the box though was such that it was very difficult to get the, the this dense material out of. So uh, we ended up having to build canted canted bottoms on the new boxes and just really go through chain you know just basic structural changes on the bottom of the boxes. You can't just have a flat bottom yet. You, you know, you have it, for, for you to be able to just stand there, open the valve and let it flush itself. We needed a new design. Um, and which is what we did. You know, you just got to take your lumps, you know, if something isn't working, you just got to, you know, you just got to own it. You got to move on uh, and, 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 you know, just, just fix the problems. And so that's that's what we've been doing. All the, the 16 newest reactors, of which I've got the last four here over on the other side of the shop, um, they, uh, they, they've all got those bottom canted boxes. So that inside, it's actually at an angle, 
where the water runs straight through the middle and then you've got the manifold on the backside. So the water, anything that is collected on the sides uh, is, is also pulled in and removed from the system and then collected either in a sludge, in a, what's called a dewatering bag um, with a tarp on top of it so that the material can dry out so you can remove it from site and sell it because that's, that's usable material depending on what you're working with. Um, or you send it to a flush basin. Um, now that Google picture uh, there, uh, that this box, I don't know if you can see my cursor, but that the, the box, uh, the, the black one there on the bottom right side, that little guy right there is pulling more than the next two ponds that it's connected to by itself. Just to give you an idea, that's the effectiveness of one of these systems. In that box is shredded up coconut husks. Um, but it was really difficult to clean up. I mean, it, they work like gangbusters. They really work well. It's it's not getting the material in there and getting bioremediation to do its thing. It's then once you've got all this dense material, how do you get it back out again? That was the hard part. Um, so that's we had to just redesign around. I ended up building in bubbler manifolds, uh, air compressor bubbler manifolds to break the material up and lift it up and 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 assist in uh, this this really getting this really crusty iron. Uh, which was uh, found to be swertmanite, gertite, and jarosite, which are three different iron sulfate um, forms of minerals that are associated with low pH iron oxidation. Um, where in, in this case, where the iron is the electron donor, um, that's the electron source, Fe2. Um, and then oxygen is your electron acceptor. And, uh, the elect uh, uh, and your carbon source is CO2 dissolved in the water. Uh, although there may, there, I think I've got evidence as well of both um, of, of organic sources for your carbon dioxide and inorganic where it dissolves carbon dioxide. And if the two are working and living in consortium, then you would have, um, even at a pH of like a 2.8, 2.9, um, multiple metabolic pathways, both operating off of the iron, but using different carbon sources. Um, Theoretically, or uh, hypothetically, I, I don't have solid evidence on that one yet, other than, you know, that's that's the box, by the way, it was doing 800 grams per cubic meter a day. Uh, oh, it's that one's about 4.8 cubic meters in size. The two uh, white ones up above are 2.4. Uh, so they're, the, the, big, the big one down there is double the volume. Uh, additional benefits. Oh, wow, boy, blasting right through that. Uh, yeah, all right, I'm going to start wrapping this. I've got several other slides here, but there's, there's other benefits. Uh, but we're, yeah, no, I'm not going to get all this. It would take me another hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had a lot more. So we're just going to go ahead and back that out. Uh, but th that's the biggies. Um, let's see. Me, uh, Arib, how do I stop? Uh, go back to my screen, regular screen share. Stop showing screen. There we go. Okay. Can you see me? We don't see your uh, screen yet. Uh, no, I yeah. think he, he wanted to know if we saw him. He was pulling his screen off. We do yeah. see right. him. Yeah, I, let's see. It looks like it's just showing a picture of me and the economic action team, which is fine. Um, that, yeah, that, that's good. Um, Got any questions for me, please shoot. Um, I have a bunch, but let's sure. go back to your last slide that you rushed, that you, you felt you realized the time was a little short, so you rushed through a little bit. Um, 
what, what do you see as the best, if, if time and money were not a constraint, what would you see as the best, you know, near future application of your bioreactor systems? Uh, food waste processing and methane purification. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, decentralizing grids. Um, and because uh, right now the world is ran by engineers who just love concrete and don't know jack about biology. I, I just, I keep, I've been beating my head against this wall multiple t for years now. Uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why it's very difficult to get this kind of, this is conceptualization out there because it's, it sucks being first uh, is, is, is what it comes down to. Um, it, it, but yeah, I mean, for, for near term, what's going to do, like I, I, I've run back of the, back of the napkin. If we build 3.5 billion reactors that cost $3.5 trillion and keeping in mind that gross domestic product, global gross domestic product is 120 trillion. And we're talking about 2.5% of one year's GDP for three and a half billion reactors. That's one for every two people on the planet. Uh, I, I think we could make a significant and rapid reduction in both CO2 concentrations and just the basic efficiency in all sorts of different industries, because it all comes back to water. And, and you know, engineering's inability to cheaply deal with these problems because they're not thinking about wetlands in a framework that is accepting of the principles of self-organization. They're just, it's, it's just not what they're taught. I'm, I'm not saying that they're not capable of understanding, although I have come across some now, even chemists, I just can't get the concept through to them. They just don't get it. And, and it, that, and I, if, if you hear a little bit of frustration in my voice, it's, it's legit. It is frustrating. Um, I mean, I'm just going to keep on keeping on. Like, I don't have a choice. Like, I, I just have to continue to try to educate, outreach, and, you know, and, and hold these presentations and have people ask me questions. Because uh, I, I, I haven't had anybody throw me a stumper in a long time, but usually people just shrug and like, I don't know what he was talking about. And, I'm, and, and that, that's, that's the part where, I, you know, it, it's tough, man. It's just, it's one of those things. <laughs> uh, but going back to your question, the, the ones that would most readily and rapidly, both from a business perspective and what would be good for the planet and people in general. And I'm not just talking Americans because we're rich. You know, we, we don't know. We have no idea how good we have it. I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the rest of the world that is developing, still developing. I don't like to call them undeveloped. It sounds like a it just just an imperialistic thing to say, but those who need the most help, they can't afford concrete and engineering, huge or uh, uh, these these big systems. But if you can decentralize something that is using endemic microbes that is capable of self-selection and organization, you can have a rapid, and especially since it's easy to get these things, I could I could put a bunch of material into a Connex box or a shipping container with some welders and some solar panels and put them anywhere on the planet and have enough energy now that we have our new construction techniques, now that we, we do all thermal extrusion welding 
um, and, and all of our boxes are made out of uh, recycled high-density polyethylene. That's that's what we use. It's good all the way down to a 2pH. There's pretty much no environment that the stuff won't handle. Um, it's lightweight. It's easy to move around. And I can teach somebody how to weld in a couple days, and they don't even have to know how to read it. That is powerful. I just can't get it out there. Uh, you know, it's just... I'll, I'll, I'm just going to keep at it. It's you know th these are just my frustrations, but the, the the principles and the way that we've designed the business and the units, especially with the new techniques and technologies, is that we can potentially, hopefully, my God, hopefully, rapidly get this uh, get the technology out to people who really, 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 really need it. Um, that's so you know once again going back to your question, methane, wastewater, food waste. Mining impacts are pretty, that, that's more of a, a localized thing. I mean, even though they're all over the place, it's more of a localized thing um, and is, is, isn't is something that everybody has to deal with. But, you know, poop in the water. There are a lot of people got to deal with that, and that's a lot more important long term. You know, that's half the world's population is still having to deal with that. We're just, we're rich. We could afford the concrete. We could afford clarifiers and, 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 and the engineering costs associated to build a $100 million addition to your wastewater treatment plant. They just put in a $37 million methane digester here um, in, in Altoona here. I'm, I'm going to get a tour on that one. And oh, they're using the methane forest to boil off the water. And I'm like, that's the most inefficient damn thing that you could do because it takes so much energy to boil water. And I mean, it just just little things that kind of just just bug me when there's more potential and it's not being efficiently used. But that's just that's just me and my angst. Um, <laughs> but there's mostly I'm just trying to say that there are new ways and potentials that we could be doing the same things we're doing better. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, what 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 else you got for me, Wayne? <laughs> uh, this is coming from Francis, our biochemist and ecologist. Um, your most uh, natural audiences. Um, so, I would, yeah, I have, I don't think I've talked to any biochemists and that's, that's, it's not for lack of outreach. I mean, I'm sure I'm, I've ran into a couple of them through, uh, um, well, Steli, yeah, one, no, one of my best friends, Steli's a biochemist, um, he, from the Mars Society, but generally it's reclamation people, farmers, um, and, and, and those who are in the reclamation field. Uh, so standard ecologists, they are usually looking holistically, from my experience, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not speaking for their professions, um, but I, I, don't, I don't generally run across a whole lot of them because in the mining community, once again, it's engineers. Um, from wastewater treatment, it's engineers. Food waste uh, 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 degradation, it's wastewater engineers. So they're not listening to the ecologists or the biochemists any more than they're listening to me. And But, but that, that, those are the fields that I work in, so I generally I mean, some microbiologists, yes. I mean, I'll come across microbiologists, but not very often. So once again, the engineers aren't listening to them either. 
by and large. I'm not, there, there's, there's always certain circumstances, but I'm just saying from my professional experience over 12 years now and working with different organizations, they, they got a blind spot. It's huge. It's, it's billions of dollars huge. And that's just on one site that I, I can't, I, I can't really talk about some of the NDAs that I've got, but, um, I, I, you know, I've come across sites and systems where, you know, they, they'd be bidding out a billion and a half where like, yeah, we can do that for about a hundred million. Those, those, those are my numbers, you know, and, and are, but, go ahead. What are the materials costs for a system, let's say that would be built in a third world country for your system? Not the, not labor material about. Oh, well, uh, the newest boxes that I'm building right now, uh, it was including labor uh, about 2,500 bucks per unit. Um, that, and that, that, that includes inflation and also things being difficult to get materials. And, I, um, no, I didn't charge anywhere near enough for those units. Um, I, I, they should have been around 65 to hundred to seven grand. Um, and they cost about 2,500. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, and there's, there's, that's, that's me building it. I know you're saying not including labor. You have to include the labor to think about what your overall costs are. But if I and that's me paying myself anywhere from you know around fifty, it, I should be charging myself fifty to hundred you know hundred dollars an hour for my labor. I think after this last job, I made a couple bucks an hour or something like that. Um, but those costs could be reduced if you don't have to ship it. If you can find a source of HDPE in country, uh, whether it's recycled or otherwise. Um, obviously, your labor costs can come way down too. So there's there's a lot of wiggle room. That's that's building them as like you know that that that's if Henry Ford is still building the Model Ts by hand in his shop. So there's an ex, there's there's a lot of potential for exponential expansion. Uh, and just I mean you know can we do some of it with robots? Yes. I mean, do I want to do that? Yeah. People vote. People and salaries and wages support families so there's there is some things that i think should be automated but i think by and large it's more important that people have jobs and what we're finding is there's some things that people just do better i mean they're, they're you know some things you just can't automate yourself out of which is good i mean certainly not the installation i mean you've got the fabrication you've and then you've got the installation then you've got the maintenance of the system. So there's multiple points along that pathway of installation or of, of the whole, the lifespan of the system where people can have jobs, long-term good paying jobs, uh, because those systems aren't going to stop polluting anytime soon. Uh, I mean, some of them do, it, it happens, it's known to happen, but some of them get worse. Uh, so we, we've designed the boxes, there's the, the way I build them now, there is zero planned obsolescence in these systems. Uh, I, I, the ones I'm pumping out right now will last at least 50 years. And you want to look at that 50 plus year lifespan as what is your overall costs for the system for how long you think it's going to be running. Concrete doesn't last that long. So you're already building systems that are light, that you can deliver, you can move by hand, uh, which I do. I mean, I, 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 they're not that heavy. I mean, they're gonna, they're gonna give you some guns, but like they're not that heavy. Um, so as far as getting them out there into populations, I, I think it's really the only option. 
uh, for most of the world's population because they don't have they can't afford the heavy duty infrastructure and the concrete, which is you know our our systems are made out of carbon. It's plastic, where they've got to they've got to use up even more carbon to produce the the concrete itself. So our ability to reach carbon negativity, or as essentially we're, this is a carbon negative system because it is much more efficient. It's made out of carbon, and it reduces the energy that you would otherwise have to use in building something else over the long term. And then go ahead and factor back in that you can um, capture either methane. Can you can you drive off your ammonia uh, so that you capture your nitrogen? Because nitrogen loss is all obviously that's the biggie and that's the biggest limiting factor in agricultural systems. But if you can recapture your, your ammonia, um, which is highly soluble, but also gases off under reducing conditions, um, that's nitrate to uh, nitrite to um, uh, ammonia and ammonium, um, whether it's uh, soluble or gas uh, degasses. Um, so there's 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 a whole lot of opportunities, as mentioned earlier, that you get byproducts that start adding on, and now it becomes more difficult to quantify because you've got this other whole source of something that's useful that you didn't have before. Well, cool. Um, we are at one o'clock, which is our hour, and I want to be respectful to our audience to wrap things up here soon. Uh, Mark or Aaron or Areev, do you guys have any questions for? For Colin, I see one from Aaron. I got a question. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, grams. Yeah, I just uh, thank you, Aaron. I just saw that right now. Yeah, grams per cubic meter a day. Okay. Do you have an example of like a before and after that we can of one of your success stories? Or I'm sure they're all success stories, but oh no, 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 they're not. Not everything. No, I mean. <laughs> Uh, learning what what we can and cannot uh, like zinc and uh, nickel um, that it, in an oxidative system will not be removed. That was a fail um, because it needed to be reducing. I didn't know that we were supposed to be producing like uh, uh, nickel sulfide or, or zinc sulfides, um, and that is just not something that I've had success with yet because all of my systems up until now have been aerobic. Um, uh, for uh, getting those numbers for the the manganese, 360 grams per cubic meter a day. Uh, that would be the water, uh, it would have about, I think it had something along the lines of 16 milligrams go into a series of four of the uh, of the white boxes I showed you earlier. This was back in 2015 and 16, and it came out at about four or five milligrams per liter. Uh, so you, you had a drop of, you know, about two-thirds of the manganese out in that system uh, in those four boxes, and that was running at about 50 gallons a minute. Um, and of course, the other commercial systems, then we have to get iron, aluminum, and manganese down to whatever our, um, uh, the, the, the requirements are for that site as based off of the TMDLs or your total maximum daily loads. And that's usually less than one milligram per liter of, of X, what, whatever it is. Um, so the, the, those are the metrics uh, that, that we, uh, we have to use. And it's the same as um, food waste processing. I mean, everything that, or that is releasing water has a TMDL of some kind. So it's, which is nice because everybody's got to work on the same, um, you know, we're all playing the same game. We're all, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a level playing field, at least from that perspective, which is great. I, I fully, uh, I, I fully push for that. Uh, thank you, Clean Water Act. That's where that came from. All right. Well, Colin, thank you so much. Um, I'm sure that Mark's going to probably contact you or Areeb and ask you for copies of your slides, just because sure. if we get those to the 
audience we always get within a week we'll have 10 times as many people watch this as a replay that ever watch it live uh, i went back and looked to see how many had watched your last presentation as replays and it's in the, it's in the hundreds it's kind of cool um and um yeah and i can, I can get them to come to my youtube channel <laughs> yeah. uh, um, wayne if you do the other half of this slide presentation as a part two I, that that's fine. I'd be happy to. I mean, well, we might we might want to do that. I think that this is valuable enough information that uh, that that it's it'd be good to get that second half. So we'll talk about that. That'd be great. Okay. Well, yeah, it, it, everybody, it, it, thank you so much for being with us, Mark and Areeb and Aaron. Thank you for helping um, put this together. And Colin, again, best wishes. Anything we as an organization can do to help you, please let us know. And uh, We'll see everybody on our next webinar, which is, I think, on Friday. And um, until then, take advantage of the summer. We're almost summer, wherever <laughs> you're at in the northern hemisphere. And I guess it'd be almost winter in the, in the southern hemisphere. Thanks, Mark. Why don't you take us out? Thanks, Wayne. Thanks. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.